All right. Well, tonight is uh, tonight's an incredible privilege for me. Uh, you guys know this is this is my first time teaching here, um, and and Jared asked me last week that I was going to be if I wanted to teach. He was like, "Oh, okay, sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna teach." And this is this is a kind of coming from an it is coming from an assignment that I did, but I chose the assignment <coughs> with our church in mind. Uh, I had to choose one of the minor prophets, and I thought, well, Hosea is such a vivid story, an incredible story of, of love and of faithfulness, and I thought, what better story to tell to a church like this, a young church, um, with many married couples. I do find it a little bit ironic that you put the single guy up to watch the <laughs> sexual purity series. But nonetheless, you know, it's God's word and, and we're all gonna we're all gonna enjoy it. Um, it may be a little bit different from what we're used to. Uh, I'm gonna be asking for us to turn our pages in our Bibles and to do quite a bit of reading. Uh, so we're gonna get a little bit of a Bible exercise tonight. But I think it's gonna be really helpful and I hope that my ultimate hope is that it will actually increase your love for the whole of Scripture. It will increase your love for the Old Testament as well as for the New. And really, I'm not going to be digging too much into practical matters of sexual purity this week. I'm going to leave that to, to the next two weeks. What I really want to do is provide a theological foundation for why we want to be sexually pure. Okay, so answering the question of the why. So uh, with that, uh, let's open up our Bibles to Hosea 1.1. I'm going to be going through sort of an overview of the book and pulling out significant things. Um, so we should have a pretty good understanding of the whole by the time we're done. I'm going to pray for us before we start. John. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you have communicated in your word such an incredible truth. Thank you for yet another way through this story how you show us how much you love us. Lord, help me to communicate. Help your word speak. Please, Lord, Send your Holy Spirit to guide us, to help us understand, and to not only understand from our minds, but to be challenged in our hearts. Lord, help us to see the great lover that you are of us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so, I'm going to begin with some statistics. Uh, in 2014, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention offered the following report on some marital conditions in the U.S. Uh, there were 2,140,272 marriages in the U.S. that year. Of that, there was about uh, 3.2 divorces for every thousand. And 17% of those divorces because of adultery. Now, that's kind of, how do I think about all that? That's a huge number, and how do we break that down to make it understandable? If we were to break that down, that would mean that every week, 378 marriages are broken apart because of adultery. 
378 families. And that, that's a pretty bleak, uh, pretty difficult to wrap our minds around of the situation, the marital conditions in our country today. But what I want to encourage you guys with is that it's not the first time that we've seen marital infidelity. And in fact, marital infidelity plays a central role, or, or has a central piece in God's redemptive plan to save us, to save mankind. And so, I'm going to start just by going over some introductory material of Hosea. Um, Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel after the, the united monarchy under Solomon had broken apart. Uh, he had a 45-year ministry. That's a really, really long ministry. And he was, he was there in the midst of, unfortunately, Israel's ultimate demise. Uh, Israel was on a, on a, a, a path of, of decline. And God was going to use Hosea to essentially bring this message of judgment for the things that they've done. Um, even though it's going to be really tragic, uh, I want you guys to know that there is a golden thread that runs through the whole book of Hosea. And I don't know if you guys can hear the similarity in this, but Hosea is actually also the same name that is given to Joshua, and that is also even given to Jesus himself. So there is sort of a, a connection to a, a salvation that is hidden within all of this um, adultery. And so I'm going to break the book up into three, really three parts. Um, most of our time we're going to be spending in, in the first three chapters. Uh, one in three are going to be the story of Hosea and his unfaithful wife, Gomer. Chapters four and then four through 14 are going to be the story of Israel as an unfaithful wife to God. Right? So we're going to be jumping through those, and uh, I'll, I'll sort of direct us through that. And then at the end, I'm going to go through, and we're, going to, we're just going to kind of examine that golden thread of God's faithfulness and God's salvation that he, he is putting through uh, this entire story. Um, I need to paint a picture first of the Northern Kingdom. The northern kingdom at this time was in a lot of material prosperity. There was a lot of uh, political peace as well. And how many of y'all are, how many of y'all are 90s kids? Sorry, shameless 90s kids blood. Uh, so I like to think of the time of northern Israel as like the 90s, right? Not just because we have like childhood nostalgia, but because literally it was like, it was a time of prosperity. Economy was exploding. Um, uh, it was pre 9 11, so we weren't in war. And uh, for me personally, my father's company was like doubling sales every year during that time. And so I like to think of, of this time that Hosea is going to be essentially indicting Israel as like a time of great prosperity. And we know that the root of it is because of God's compassion on Israel, and he, he prospers them in this time. Unfortunately, what we're going to see is that Israel doesn't respond in repentance, they don't respond in, in gratitude, they don't respond in obedience, but they do actually really the opposite of it. Um, so that's that's sort of our, our historical context of where we're at. So with that, I want to jump into the text. Can somebody read for me Hosea 1, 1 through 9? Read. 
The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Azah, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of jo um, Josh, Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have two and, and have children of whoredom. <clears throat> For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in, je in just a little while, while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow, break the bow of Israel and in the valley of of Israel, in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the, by the Lord their God, and I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore his son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So here we have God's command to Hosea, right? Go take a wife of uh, adultery, of whoredom. And the best way to think about this is um, Gomer wasn't uh, committing adultery before because God wouldn't, God wouldn't say, go, go take this wife as she is already unfaithful. The way I like to think of this is it parallels the relationship he has with Israel and that Israel was blameless, innocent, set apart, and then as she grew in her relationship with God, she became increasingly unfaithful. And so you see that there's this progression, and in the children's name, there is great significance. You see, with each successive name, the, the judgment that comes, that is represented from each, increases. And so I'm just going to go through some of those names. Jezreel. Uh, the name Jezreel actually means God will scatter, which gives it a, a pretty good connotation of judgment. Uh, you're scattering a people. Um, you're going to pretty much disassemble their unity. You're going to disassemble them, and you're going to scatter them abroad. So he's saying, this, this is going to be your fate, Israel. I'm going to scatter you. The next one, no mercy. This is pretty much, this is, this is the concrete judgment that God is saying, <coughs> it's, it's done. Uh, there's, there's no more forgiveness, and you, you can't turn back from this. Uh, there, there will be no more mercy. And the last one is, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And I want to ask you guys, what, how, why does that sound, how does that sound familiar? Think, uh, think in the Old Testament. It's the exact opposite of like what God spoke today before. Yes. Do you remember when? When he called him as a nation? Yes. Exactly. Very good, Shalane. Um, Exodus 3.7. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. He's talking to Moses. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Uh, in Leviticus 26.12, he says, I will walk among you, 
and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And in some ways, if we, if we were to take the first five books of this Bible, which we call the Torah, that right there, you will be my people and I will be your God, can probably be the summation, that is the theme of the Torah. It's the whole process of God calling his people Israel out and making them a nation for his own. And so for the Hebrew, for the Israelite living in the northern kingdom at this time with, with this judgment just pronounced, I would think that the Israelites, thinking back to the traditions, thinking back to their, to their ancestors, would have a bone-drilling kind of fright because, what do you mean, God? You are our God and we've been your people. But unfortunately, their, their apostasy has led the Lord to, to bring this separation and judgment upon them. So, I hope there's something here that we also can think about in terms of what Hosea is doing, right? Um, how many of y'all have heard about something we call sign act? It's like a sign act. Um, throughout the Old Testament prophets, we have God using the life of the prophets to actually communicate the message that he's trying to say about him and Israel. Uh, for Hosea, it's unfortunately taking an adulterous wife. And that's, that's pretty heart-wrenching and that's pretty horrible, but I think it really does get the message across that God's saying, Israel, you've essentially violated our covenant. You, you have violated our marriage. And, and so we, we can't continue in covenant like this anymore. Um, there's some pretty other silly things like in Ezekiel where he has to, this father has to lay on his side and throw rocks at like a model of Jerusalem and unfortunately eat food that is cooked on his own, uh, well, cow feces and do this for like 390 days. And this is a sign of the siege and the fall and the exile of Jerusalem. And so God, God, I mean, being a prophet is probably one of the hardest jobs you could ever have on the planet. <laughs> you know, uh, for, there's, a, there's some pretty grim things that God needs to do, especially if you're a prophet of judgment. Hopefully as, as uh, preachers, we're, we're prophets of good news, right? So, um, so there's, there's definitely this embodying of the message that God is, is trying to communicate to Israel. From here, I want to move on to how Israel has been an unfaithful bride to God. Um, can somebody read for me, just picking up in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I'll read it. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters you have received mercy. Be with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. I am not her husband. But she put away her whoring from her face, her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoring. But their mother has played the whore, she had, who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will help, help I will hedge up her way with thorns, 
and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her task. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished her on her silver and gold, which they used for bay. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry. I went after her lovers, but forgot me, declares the Lord. So, back in chapter 1, verse 2, God clarifies that the, the reason why he's, he's performing or exercising this judgment is because the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And here in this section, in chapter 2, we have what I think is an elaboration on why God is judging that nation. Right? Um, I would say the two things. Number one, forsaking the Lord. Number two, turning away to other idols. It's interesting because we think, oh, what does, why, does God, why does God demand worship? Why is it so serious to him? Why is he going to cut them off? Uh, who remembers what the first commandment is? No other gods. No other gods. And so it, it's it's number one on his list. And what the worship here in mind is is it's a bowing down. It is a it is a ritualistic worship to the Baals, which is essentially what would be like the local gods in Canaan, who are known to be like fertility gods. And so what they would do is they would try to appease the gods because they were always concerned about their agricultural prosperity. And they would appease the gods by, A, doing sacrifices similar to the way that they would do sacrifices to Yahweh. But they would also uh, establish high places where they would have sex with cult prostitutes in the hopes that they would give they would gain the favor of these gods. Like these, these gods were enticed by the fact that people were sacrificing their bodies and sex to them. And the worst part is that eventually they started to sacrifice their children to these gods, which we know from back in Egypt, that's, that's a huge no-no. Um, and so those are really the two things, and I just want to think, it's pretty ironic, because in this judgment, God's not, God's just, he's saying, uh, I've given you all these things, food, wine, clothing, and yet this, these are the things that you're using to worship these other gods. Um, and so I'm going to break off all of those things so you can no longer worship them. You will go to your lover, but you won't be able to anymore. And I just wanted to, to bring a point here that 
how often in our lives do we attribute or do we, or do we say that things are due to other things, like good blessings in our life, like our material prosperity or our jobs or our careers or our, our wonderful you know, marriages even, our relationships. And so often, though we'll never say it with our mouths, our actions actually and our attitudes and thoughts actually show that we have trusted in other things more than in God. We have in our own minds, in our own hearts, given credit, given glory to these things. And um, sometimes they're outside of ourselves. Sometimes they're ourselves, ourselves. Um, but I just wanted to, to make that point because it it's, seems foreign to us. Like, we would all never go out onto a mountain and rise, erect an idol and, and start worshiping it. But in so many other ways, in our own hearts, we have these functional gods where we pretty much commit the same thing that Israel does. So, I know it's a lot of judgment right now. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep on going through some of it. I want I want to show how this is this is a not just some anger that God is expressing as a part of this just you know just wrath, but there were actually stipulations that were given at the time that they became a nation. And so I want to ask uh, four people um, to go to a few different places. Uh, can we turn, can four people turn to Deuteronomy 28? And what I want to do is have one person read verse 16 through 18. I can do that. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, verse 22, 20, 22 to 24, and 38 to 40. I'll do 22 to 24. Okay. 38 to 40? Yeah. Just chapter 28. Yes. Uh, is, it's pretty long, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't want, I, I don't want to do the whole thing. I want, I, I'm going to, I'm going to stagger it. Yeah. All right. Uh, and then, and then verse, I'll read, I'll read verse 47. Okay. Uh, go ahead and read Deuteronomy 16 through 18. Okay. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you... Cursed, cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your grounds, the increase of your herds and the young of your people. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever. Inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. You shall carry much seed into the field, and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. And verse 47 says, Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you, and hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Realize, church, this is 700 years before anything that happens in Hosea. We've got the birth of a nation. 
God gave his covenant to Moses, and he said, you are going to be my people, I'm going to be your God, and if you obey me, I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations, I'm going to bless you, and earlier in Deuteronomy 28, you have all the list of blessings. If you disobey, what, from the things that we've read, you see all the list of curses that they're going to incur if they don't obey. And there's so much language here, just in chapter 2, that talks about the cutting off of their agriculture, uh, the famine, the, the end to their, their feasts, um, and eventually, and unfortunately, their exile, that they're going to serve other nations. And how horrible would this be? It's like, you've come out of slavery, out of Egypt, you have this, you have this incredible God who saves you, he sets up a covenant with you in the hopes that you'll obey and be, and be blessed. And at the end of your nation's lifespan, you've essentially violated that covenant, and you're going to go back into slavery. Mm-hmm. There is a, a, a probably, I, I would hope, among the Israelites at this point, a deep mourning, a deep despair that, oh, God is, God is abandoning us. But that's not the case. Um, in the rest of the book, from chapters 4 to 14, we have more reiterations of this judgment, more elaboration on it. And then we also have a recounting of Israel's history and their unfaithfulness. But what I want to do is I want to sort of move on from this and kind of go on onto uh, looking how God is ultimately going to respond to everything that's happening, right? Um, I also want to say, you know, there's a lot of judgment language, there's a lot of God's justice, a lot of God's wrath, a lot of uh, the consequences of disobeying the law here. But I want to read this, this portion from Jeremiah. This is in a different context, but it still shows how God embodies the emotions and the, and the way that he cares for his people, that he saved. Um, Jeremiah, he says, Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. And so God is not just like a harsh, you know, uh, master. He's not somebody who's just, oh, this is, he's not a harsh judge. But he's one who sees the sin and sees the covenant and must exact that justice, but whom himself is torn apart because of that. Um, and so I want to move from that onto the, the fact that even though Israel, even though Gomer were unfaithful, God has set things up in a way in his redemptive plan that his love shows and proves to be the unwavering factor here. Alright, so let's jump back to chapter 1, and I'll just have somebody read uh, verses 10 and 11. Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, and uh, go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And here we see the beginning of this golden thread of salvation. Uh, God in this chapter just went over what he ought, what Jose ought to name his children. And you see that, like I said, there's that success of increasing judgment. But look, look at this just in verse 11. He essentially uses the names of the children, but reverses everything that he just said he was going to judge them with. 
that they would not be uh, not my people, but they would be children of the living God. Um, that they will be like the like the sand of the sea, and that they will appoint one head over them. And we know that head today to be Jesus Christ. We already we can already see here the messianic tones that that Christ is is a part of the plan and in the reversal of the judgments that are, that are happening here. So let's continue. So let's go to chapter 2 and read verse 14 through 23. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Thanks, Jim. This is one verse after all the judgment that God has just pronounced on Israel. And already he's just instilling this sense of incredible hope. Um, I don't know if you picked it up, but in this, in this passage, if you notice, is that strong marital language. It's like, you'll no, no longer call me Baal, which ironically means Lord, but you will call, call me husband. Um, and here again, you see the reversal. And they shall answer Jezreel, I will sow her for myself in the land. That, that word sow is the same word that was used uh, previously to say scatter the people. So now it's more of like a, it's an abundant blessing. I'm going to sow them in the land. I'll have mercy on no mercy. And I will say, not my people, you are my people. And you shall say, you are my God. And so we have this incredible turnaround. And we see that God's ultimate plan, even though he has to judge the, the nation for this intermittent time, his ultimate plan is to bring them back into restoration, to be his, his wife, to be his people. But this leaves us with a, a question of what, what happens to Hosea, what, what happens to our, our prophet friend, who unfortunately has to act out all these horrible things. Um, can somebody read chapter 3? It's a shorter chapter. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. 
even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and Homer and a lethage of barley. And I say to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come and fear to the Lord and to the goodness in the latter days. Um, men in the church, would you do this? Mm-hmm. Or women? Buy back a an unfaithful partner, and uh, and there's debate about how much it costs. You know, you've got 15 pieces of silver. Um, in some ways, you could. We don't know what's what the cost or what the value is of some of these things. Uh, we do know that it's it would take 30 pieces of silver to essentially buy a slave. And so, for however this happened, however Gomer got into a situation, she became indebted, and she's either using her body to buy herself out of her indebtedness, or she's just become a sex slave altogether. And you see here what the love of God embodied in Hosea is doing. Go again, love her. And you can just imagine what that would do to Hosea's heart, tear it up to a million pieces, and, and think, God, I don't want to do that. Um, but you see that God has his ultimate purposes in showing that he has a people who are unfaithful and he is a God who will be unwavering in his love for that bride. And for today, our story is not different. We share in this same story, we share in the same covenant that was made thousands of years ago as Gentiles were grafted into this, and what we see as a story of a foreign nation that has little attachment to us is actually really the story of one nation's failure to be faithful to a God who today is continually faithful to us. Uh, I think the most obvious church metaphor that we have is the fact that Jesus Christ is our husband and we are the bride of Christ. And in many ways in our lives that we've maybe come to Christ and that we've grown in our sanctification, this dynamic of this adultery still exists. There is so much sin in our lives. There is so much worship in our lives of other things that buy for our attention and our praise, and we are acting no different than Israel. And yet, the cost of us was so much more than 15 pieces of silver, but it was the cost of the blood of the only Son of God. 
And in some ways, all the judgments that we went through in chapter 2 and all throughout chapters 4 through 14, on that cross were laid on him. All resources were cut off from him. He was neglected. He was cast out by the Father. And so, I like to think about this. Um, last year, I, I went to a, I went to a wedding. Right? Um, I sometimes wonder. It's kind of strange, especially as a male. Like God, why do you use so much marriage <laughs> vocabulary? Why do you use so, talk about so much about marriage and about Christ being the husband and, and leaving the bride? And I went to this wedding last year, and it was at the the Riverside Mission. I don't know if any of you have been there. They have this really cool setup there in Christmas. It's all lit up and ablaze with lights. But in their chapel, they have this incredible setup where they have all the seats going along the sides and all the seats face inward. In the front, you have the, the altar. It's, it's Catholic, so you have the altar and, and all the other um, statues. Uh, and in the back, you have these incredible floor-to-ceiling double doors. And the way that they did this wedding was so incredible. I had everybody get in. They had the husband, the soon-to-be husband, standing up front. And they had the bride outside. And the music was going, and the music was going, and the music was going. And everybody's anticipating and waiting for the moment that they're going to open the doors, right? The music stops, and they wait for like 30 seconds. If it's like the most <laughs> terrible 30 seconds ever, you're like, come on already! And they open the door, and you see this incredibly beautiful bride, made up, spotless, without blemish, without wrinkle. And the thing that I had to look at, yeah, I did look at her, but the thing that I had to look at more was him. What was going through his heart? What was going through his mind? And is this not Christ to us? How much love Christ has that he would call us his bride. It's, it's beyond me. Um, and so, in thinking, guys, about uh, sexual purity, we could stand up here and give you a thousand tips on how to stay pure. We, we could... We could um, tell you how to, to change all the different avenues of your life that would, that would eliminate all the possibilities of being sexually impure. But what I want us to understand is if we're going to be sexually pure, we need to be entranced by the gospel. We need to see the love of Christ and that love which he has for us that would never cause us to desire to be impure. After seeing what cost, after seeing how much love, how could you ever be impure? There's, there's, a, there's obviously a, a vertical thing that needs to happen there, right, with our purity. But there's that also, and I'd say is the foundation of what happens horizontally. Um, I'm going to close this in a couple of, with a couple of verses. And, you know, I, I recognize a lot of us are... Um, not me included, but a lot of us are long-time believers. And um, I just kind of want to 
exhort those who have been longtime believers. I think we can go through our lives and we can we can uh, come to Christ and we can grow in our knowledge and we can grow in our holiness. And all of a sudden, just becomes this like like I'm living my righteous life and things are good and in some ways, yeah, they're good. But I just want to remind you uh, out of Revelation about. Uh, what God said to the Ephesian church. He said, but I have this against you, pretty much just one thing, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And so just to just to help those of us who have been walking with Christ for a long time, um, <coughs> never let the love of God grow cold in your hearts. Right? And uh, the second verse is very popular, and I just want to to echo this as we kind of go out and and um, begin sort of more the practical aspects of sexual purity. To just remember that this love of God has to be our foundation, and this is uh, its nature. Romans eight thirty eight and nine. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let me pray for us, and then we will enjoy the rest of our time tonight. Holy Father, thank you that you gave us your word. Thank you that we have these stories of men and women who are not too different from us, even though they're from a long time ago, and how you dealt with them faithfully. Thank you, God, that this was all a part of your plan, that this was all coming to the point where we would have one faithful husband, Jesus Christ, who would give up his own life for the sake of his bride, church, us. And so God, I pray as, as we think and meditate on this great unwavering love that you have for us, may we respond in an unwavering love for you. May we, Lord, in our marriages, respond with your love, seeing that it is unconditional seeing that it is not the way that the world, does not operate the way that the world operates. But it comes from you, and it is wholly good. God, thank you for how much you love us. Thank you for Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. We pray that we would have learned much tonight, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.